If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14, but as you're turning there, I'll give you two reflections. One, Cubs fans are the most theologically sound in the gospel. Yeah, thank you, Don. Um, I've always said that Cubs fans know the gospel better than anyone else because we have this desperate need to keep hoping all the time. Hoping, hoping, hoping. And the second thing I would say is I love when I watch little kids dart across in our fellowship time and want to greet their friends. And I thought about that in a serious way. I thought about that with this whole vacation Bible school thing in the community. And we say, and, it, and it's true and I get what we mean, like if you don't like kids and uh, you don't have to work with kids. And I just thought about that this morning. I'm like, especially after having spent time with the foster kids last night, the heart of Jesus was for kids, Okay. So I think we all need a little attitude adjustment. Maybe God would lay on your heart, you know what, maybe I don't really like to work with kids and maybe I'm not that good at it, but I could be better. I could demonstrate the love of Christ towards children. When you spend time with them, yes, they can be rambunctious, but look in the mirror, right? We're just older kids is what we are still in our own different ways. And so uh, maybe the Lord leads you to spend time with them. Uh, that had nothing to do with the message this morning, uh, but it is good to look to God's Word now. And we're looking at chapter 14, kind of zooming in on this uh, difficult text that we'll talk about. Uh, so it'd be good if you had a Bible. It'll be on the screens, but we're going to say this affirmation today. And I really do, as I'll share in a moment, really pray that God would speak to us, not me today, uh, that he would really grab our attention and what's happening in the narrative here in the Old Testament. So if you believe this, we say this as a community, let's say it together. Our pursuit is by the power of the Holy Spirit to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the word of God. No matter how painful it is to our souls or how countercultural it is to our souls, we will follow him. Amen. I'm going to read all of chapter 14. Uh, as always, the Old Testament narratives are stories, accounts of uh, what has happened in um, the, the record here in Israel at this moment. And this is David's son, Absalom. He has just killed his brother and fled. And so Absalom is uh, uh, kind of away from Jerusalem. And Joab, the general of the army, which I'll explain more, is uh, David's general. He's going to kind of bring this woman about to trick the king, if you will, or get him to bring his son Absalom home, who has been banished. This is what it says. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. 
Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give the orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, One on me be the guilt, my lord and king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my Lord and the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my Lord and the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest. For my Lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it and it weighed, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come to him. Then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better 
for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. It's the word of the Lord. I invite you to pray and ask God to speak to your hearts to make sense of all that we just read, that he would show us Christ in our need for him. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would quiet our hearts now, open our minds to understand your word by the power of your spirit. Father, that we would trust in your word, even, even in times where we don't fully understand it, and that ultimately we would see the true king we need in Jesus Christ. And we'd humble our hearts now, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, in coming to a text like this after having just read the 33 verses, uh, we're met with sort of what I would say is a head-scratcher. It's a long text in, in the scriptures, and at this point we're kind of taking a chapter at a time through Second Samuel. And after reading it and, and at least understanding the general situation, which I'll give a little more detail, you're still left wondering, what could I possibly glean from this? And I read this text, and then I reread it, and then I reread it this week in preparation for it. And I clung to this scripture, as I've mentioned before in our time in uh, the series, The King We Need in Samuel, uh, Romans 15, 4, which reminds us, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Well, as I said, I read that this week and I thought of this verse like this is God's word, so it must be for our instruction. It must have meaning. This is why, side note, expositional preaching is so important in the church. It's why we open up the Bible and we look at books at a time. We look at whole passages of scriptures. We don't skip over the hard parts, the hard parts that we don't understand. We go verse by verse and we deal with it because we find value in it. We believe in the whole counsel of God's word, even these longer Old Testament narratives. And I think we could all agree, and I know um, I could personally agree, but of, of late, many people have come to me through this entire series and said, wow, like I, I read that and you read that and then like I gleaned so much. I was like, where are you going to go with that? And God's word just penetrates our heart. And he can take any story in scripture, any account, and do it because it's God's word. It's the power of God's word. It's a treasure that you really can't plumb the depths of fully. So we think of Jesus said every jot and tittle when he was talking about the law, everything that God has put in the scripture is for our instruction that we might through endurance find hope in these scriptures. It's revealed to us. And so we know that this is important. And the goal of Bible study, by the way, is not just knowledge. When we open the scriptures, the goal of Bible study is Christ-likeness. And especially as we come to this passage, holiness, that we would reflect more the character of God's Son, Jesus Christ. We'd be pointed to Him, especially in the Old Testament. So with that, we can move forward trying to better handle 
this text, and I would say it's one of the more difficult ones that I've ever personally faced as a preacher to glean from. And by the time you get to chapter 4, you can know that this whole thing is a royal mess in David's house. But before I give you a little more detail on that, I'll give you the roadmap. These three points will be up on the screen. Uh, this is where we'll, we'll frame our time together. Number one, delayed justice. And this is really David's sin compromises true justice. Number two, this is Absalom, true reconciliation requires genuine repentance. And number three, it is God's kindness in Christ that leads us to repentance. So there's the roadmap for you. So as I said, this is a a royal mess in David's family. Up until this point, remember, David has sinned, committed adultery with Bathsheba, Then he tries to cover it up with murder and deception. This is important as you see the parallel of this particular chapter. The Lord judges him rightly by taking the life of his child. There is a dire consequence for sin. And then we know David was shown grace. He said, I've sinned against the Lord. God showed him grace even though there was consequence. And yet the consequences don't disappear immediately. Often as in our own lives, they do not disappear immediately. You can have grace and forgiveness, but those choices have consequences, and David's family had to live with them. In fact, again, I revert to this in chapter 12 when the, when the prophet said, the sword will never leave your house. That's what the Lord told David, and we see that as we continue on in the story. And this is what, what gives us all this tension and strife as you even read it, and this tension is difficult for us. When you read this, having sin have been dealt with, and this is what we say. We say, oh God, just be merciful. I'm sure the house of David said that. Oh God, just make it all go away. And that is the cry of our culture when it comes to sin. Just, Just like do away with it. Let's not hear anything about the justice of God, nothing about the need of repentance for sin. God's a big God. He could just forget about sin. We all fail. We, we, we all make mistakes. Everyone's in the same boat. And we often see that in our culture, and herein lies the problem. It's not good for anyone. It isn't possible before a holy God. And it certainly isn't justice. Reconciliation is the goal between us and God and us and others. It's important But the means, and that's what we'll look at, by which it's accomplished is of great importance. If you remember, we looked at our, our, in our series in 1 Samuel, King Saul's life, and how he responded when he was confronted by Samuel, right, for his sin. And what did he show? It was worldly sorrow that he showed, but it wasn't really godly sorrow that led to repentance, But then David, even chapters ago, is confronted by Nathan, does show godly sorrow that led to repentance, which led to reconciliation, which then restored him to God. Because that's the order of things. Well, at the end of chapter 13 and into 14, Absalom doesn't display that order of things at all. And David aids in this, and this is where he doesn't help this, because delayed justice compromises true justice. Let me start by saying this about justice. First, a definition is helpful, right? Justice is the maintenance or administration of what is right and true and equitable by the impartial adjustment of conflicting claims or by the assignment of merited rewards or punishments in accordance with the law. In other words, in terms of God's justice, 
He will deal rightly with us according to his law. In other words, sin needs a punishment when it's broken, the law is broken, and obedience claims a right reward. And so in terms of God's justice, we understand that. Now here's the thing about justice, and I would say it's often the case about biblical justice regarding the law. And this is regarding our sinful fleshly state. We usually, this is usually the case, want justice for everyone else except us. Right? We want that level of justice to be served. That's why we have tension there. We want that. They need to pay for what they've done. But when it comes to us, not so much. Right? We want others to to be punished for their deeds. We want the reward. I would say vice versa. Like, we don't really want others to get the reward, the grace part, right? And this is true in our familial tensions and there's relationships when someone hurts you and you want them to experience judgment in some way. Now, in our narrative, remember David's son Absalom kills his brother, Amnon, for what he did to his stepsister Tamar. And he sat on this bitterness and rage for two years and waited to plot his brother's death. And while we feel a sense of justice in that because, because Amnon got what he deserved, we know it was wrong because it was murder. And even Absalom knew it was wrong because he fled. He should have been brought to justice. But here David is, the king, did nothing to prevent this from happening, and he certainly is sitting on it and doing nothing about it now. And at the end of chapter 13, in verse 39, we remember this, and this kind of flows into understanding 14. It says, And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, what is this all about? This is a tough verse. What are we to make of David's approval or disapproval? And what, what does his relationship with Absalom, his son, look like? Why does his heart, why does his spirit go out to him? It just says that in the first verse of the next chapter there, that Joab knew the king's heart went out to Absalom. Is it affection or is it antagonism? I studied this at length and looked at a lot of commentators and what they're saying, a lot of praying about that, and I resolved that it's likely both. There's an unsettledness about this intention. David didn't approve of murder. Remember, he's done that himself, and he should have brought justice about, but he also has this love for his son. He's conflicted. Absalom is banished now, and his fatherly affection clouds his judgment regarding his sin. In other words, he overlooks it. And Joab takes advantage of this opportunity. Now, Joab in chapter 4, earlier in our series, if you remember, is a guy who gets things done. He's a general of David's army. He had a personal score to settle with Abner. If you remember that, go all the way back. He thrusts the knife into him in the hallway in cold blood, much to David's displeasure then. And so you find Joab recognizing this. He wants to bring about resolution in this family because he has the kingdom in mind. He recognizes that Absalom is banished and he wants to bring him back somehow. And so what he does is he, is he forms this plan. He goes to Tekoa, which is like 30 miles outside of Jerusalem, and he brings back this wise woman and he basically makes up this whole story. Now it's interesting that this parallels much 
parallel to when Nathan confronted David. Remember when he did that after adultery, he said, hey, there's this guy and this is what he did. And David's like, that man should be killed. He's like, it's you. In the same way, Joab is going at this from an attitude of, I want this woman to share this story about two sons. One kills another. And we read all of that. And she makes up this story. Uh, What should happen? Wise old woman goes before David. She's elderly. She's a widow. Everybody has a heart for that. David's judging this. That's what the king does. He judges that. No one should harm your son. If anyone goes to touch your son, then they'll have to deal with me. David understands a system of justice. And so this woman comes before him, and it's when you get to verse 12 that she says, well, can I say? It's kind of this, when you read the first verse, the 11 verses we read, it's like, hey, I want to tell you my story. David says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see the conflict there. No one will touch him. Can I tell you, can I ask one more thing? Yeah, fine, fine. Now can I speak? And that's when she really gets a hold of his heart in this. Why have you planned such a thing? Like your family is in chaos. Your son has been banished. Why have you done that? Why have you done that? And she's pleading, if you will, for David to bring his son back through the words of Joab. You see, Joab in verse 20, and we highlight this, wanted to change the course of events. That's what motivated him. He knew that there was no reconciliation in the kingdom, and this had lasting effects. In, in the woman's own story, the heir, Absalom, would be of the throne of David. Next in line, she knew, he knew that, that he needed to change things, that Absalom couldn't stay far from his father forever. And so he wants to bring reconciliation about. And of course, we don't know Joab's complete motive. It doesn't tell us that. But I think we can see that he had a desire to bring about restoration somehow to David's family. But David delays justice for two years in this in bringing him back. And it isn't justice at all. We know this because when he invites him back finally, when you get to the end in, of that text in verse 21, he, Joab comes in and Joab comes back to, or Absalom comes back rather to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in verse 24 in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So he was back, but he wasn't really back desolate in his own house. Two full years, it says in verse 28, which is why he decides to take matters into his own hands to get his father's attention. He pleads with this meeting before the king, begging for reconciliation to come about. We'll learn of his motive in a second, but, but he says, well, see, there's Joab's field right there. I'll just burn that, that Joab will come and, and ask, why did you burn that? It's kind of crazy, a cry for attention, perhaps. Does it work? It does. It eventually gets him a meeting with his father, but it reveals to us a misplaced and confused heart. And we can understand this, especially if you're a parent, which David should have acknowledged and recognized By not giving our children, as a parent, we get this, what they need in the moment in terms of corrective discipline or punishment, by not addressing with them when they make an error and we meet that with some kind of justice or punishment, and then if you don't give that, if you delay that, or if you don't punish your kids at all, and you try to do it later when you're just angry, 
Think about that. That's kind of what happens in parents' worlds. Like you go without discipline. There's no justice in the home. There's no sense of order in accordance to, in accordance to the, the punishment for disobedience and the reward for obedience. And then out of anger, you just blow up at your kids one day. What does it do to a kid? It confuses the daylights out of them. It just leaves them unreconciled. There's tension there. And David, in delaying that kind of justice... What it does in Absalom's heart is it just results in bitterness. And we see that develop in him. So much so that he's confused by the time he wants his father's affection, but he shows us in his life that he doesn't really want reconciliation. Because this point too, true reconciliation requires genuine repentance. We get no sense at all in this entire narrative that Absalom is repentant about any of his behaviors. Now, he must have known that it was wrong to murder his brother, even though, as we know, right, when you see an injustice, you want justice against that, he went and killed his brother. He violated his stepsister. You're going to pay for that. And it doesn't bring about, as sin never does, the result for which we go after it, right? It doesn't really satisfy the appetite. But he must have known it was wrong because he fled. There's no record of him desiring to make it right. And so Joab manipulates David's emotions in all of this before. Absalom answered Joab and he finally gets before him. Behold, I sent you, sent word to you, come here that I may send you to the king. Why have I come? That's Absalom's heartness. It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Now, this is what's interesting. Absalom has to know that there's guilt in him. But as we know what's going to happen in future chapters, Absalom must not be willing to truly be put to death and have ownership. He would have never brought himself before the king. And yet it's he who is so clouded and confused in his judgment that goes into this. More tension because of lack of repentance. Now, we talk about that word repentance all the time in the church. It's a biblical word. But what is it? It is an awareness or an acknowledgement of our sin and a turning towards what is right and true. In relationships, when we have relationships, this comes in the form of owning something you did to somebody and generally apologizing, which is why there's so much tension in relationships, right? They owe me an apology. They've never asked for my forgiveness, which is the right thing to do, but we hold it over their head, right, until they repent. And we struggle when this happens, right? Or I would say when repentance doesn't happen, because it's hard to be in relationships with people that sin against you and have no desire for reconciliation. They show no more remorse. The same is true within the church in the context of the body. It's hard to be in right standing with one another when there's sin in the body, which is why the scriptures teach us about church discipline and, and acknowledging that and trying to bring it into repentance. That starts with a brother walking towards another brother or a sister walking towards another sister to bring about desired outcome in reconciliation. To not delay in that justice. And for that to happen, there always needs to be acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, right? And many of you maybe even now are thinking about friends and family and other people in your life that are saying, yeah, if that person would just do that. And I would just give you a little time out to your soul and just concentrate on you for a moment. We always like to do that during sermons, right? 
Did you hear that? He's talking to you. Careful. Let me ask you a question. It's a pretty heart-penetrating question this morning. Do you, concentrating on you now, not the person next to you, do you have sin in your life that you are just completely ignoring and you're just leaving it unchecked? In other words, sin that you just really don't feel any remorse over at all. And I want you to identify with Absalom in this way because he grows hardened and bitter. Even though he knew it was probably wrong, which sent him fleeing, he grew so hardened and bitter by this, he's so confused by the time he comes before his father. This could be a grudge that you've held against somebody for years. This could be a, a fear that you have, an anxiety in life. This could be a secret sin that you are just feeding in secret. This could be an addiction. This could be an attraction you have towards something, someone. How can you know? Maybe sometimes you're like, well, I don't know. We're all sinners, right? It's understood in the scriptures that repentance stems from a serious fear of God. In fact, the New Testament's teaching on that word, the Greek word metanoia, which is used several times in the New Testament, the definition there denoting an inward change of the mind, the affections, the convictions and commitment rooted in the fear of God and sorrow for offenses committed against him and him alone, which when accompanied by faith in Jesus Christ results in an outward turning. That's why we say repentance is turning from sin towards God in, in, the, in his service in all of life. That's the message John the Baptist came and preached, repent and believe in the Son of God. It's certainly a mouthful, but what it does is it explains how it's achieved. When we feel godly sorrow, remorse over all that stuff, and of course you have to know what that stuff is, right? You have to get before a holy God and ask him like David asked to search our hearts and see if there is any unclean way about me. That's what's required if you're going to live a repentant, godly lifestyle, that you constantly be before God and say, God, search my heart. And here's the thing about that. When we do that, you and I often don't really want him to answer that question, if we're being honest. God, search my heart. Show me the unclean ways that we can agree on, but the other stuff I'll keep. Some of us don't want him to reveal that, which is why we'd be like seldom ever want to pray that way. I think it's fair to say that most of us often don't want that kind of revelation. We don't want to see the blackness of our own heart. And this is certainly true of Absalom. As we'll see in weeks to come, his bitterness covers up his desire for true righteousness. Well, you may sit here and you might say about whatever it is, your sin, and you say, well, I'm not bitter. I'm living life just fine. You might not be bitter, but know this, you might not be reconciled either. And life is too short for this kind of passive attitude towards sin. You have to desire this attitude of change and desire to fear God and trust Him if you're ever going to be set free from the shackles of that and experience reconciled relationships, mostly with God. There's this tension there. What if there was another way to live. That's what I wrote down in my notes this week as I looked at this chapter. 
Even the woman of Tekoa confronts David with this in verse 14 when she says before the king, For we must all die. We are like water spilled to the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. She was pleading for David through Joab's mouthpiece, of course. Let your son return. Like, what if there was another way to live? Yes, he did wrong. But life is too short for that. God's made a way. Which leads me to my third point. It's God's kindness in Christ that leads us to repentance. That's Romans 2.4, right? You see it on the screens. Right there. Or do you presume in the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now wait. I thought you just said repentance stemmed from the fear of God, not the kindness of God. That sounds contradictory, right? Well, this is because you have to understand the context of Romans 2, because in our culture and what we've come to believe about culture, what we've become even to believe about in the church culture is say, let's just overlook sin to some degree. We want to celebrate the grace of Christ, which we do. But our attitude sometimes says, can't we just forget about it and concentrate on the goodness of God? Which just happens even in the church, from church leaders holding Bibles. A guy like Joel Osteen, and if you like him, unlike him. Because he's a false teacher. He uses a verse like Romans 2.4 to defend this kind of feel-good messages. This is from him, a quote. He says, listen, don't dangle people over the fires of hell. Listen, that doesn't draw people to God. They know what kind of life they live. They know how bad they live. What you've got to do is talk about the goodness of God. Listen, it's the goodness of God that brings people to repentance. He's quoting Romans 2.4, essentially. But see, the problem is, Joel Osteen may think that people know that they are sinners and that we therefore don't need to warn them or preach about it, but that's Romans 2.4 out of context. Scripture is clear that as sinners, we naturally reject the guilt of our sin. Like that's in us. Solomon knew that in Proverbs 2.12. He explained every man's way is right in his own eyes. You and I get that. Like we think we're right all the time. And even those who do acknowledge their sin have little grasp of the depth and width of their wickedness or the eternal cost of our transgressions. But found in Romans 2, which is tucked between Romans 1 and 3, is the most explicit language, or I would say maybe even all of the New Testament, about man's sinfulness and depravity. And so what you and I need is the gospel presented clearly and daily in our lives. You see, the biblical order in the presentation of the gospel is always first the warning of danger and then the way of escape. First the judgment on sin and then the means of pardon. First, the message of condemnation and then the offer of forgiveness. First, the bad news of guilt and then the good news of grace. The whole message and purpose of the loving, redeeming grace of God, which is true, oh so true, offering eternal life through Jesus Christ, rests upon the reality of man's universal guilt, which includes all of us, right? Of abandoning God and thereby being under his sentence of eternal condemnation and death. Like when we get the gospel, what we get and what we ought to get, what all of you ought to get is I sat condemned under my own sin. 
That doesn't mean like, I've always known God, I've been in church my whole life. When you come to the gospel and are born again, born anew, what you get first is the wickedness of your own heart and the judgment that God has on that. Because that's right justice and right understanding. That's what Romans 2 says. We were called to worship by this. I'm just going to read this again, these 11 verses. We read the last part. This is the first part. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, who you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God. And here's verse four. Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who patience who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the Greek, for God shows no partiality. That's a heavy text. So tucked within that passage, you have God's kindness leads us to repentance, but you have to understand the context. What you and I deserve for our sin is death. That's why Scott had us concentrate on the cross this morning. What he's saying is that this presumes that many people will just overlook their sin as they look ahead to God. Even many Christians just hope that God would be just merciful. And what we need to understand is God didn't withhold punishment at all. He didn't delay justice at all. He actually put that punishment on his son. He didn't just withhold it from us. He put it on his son at the cross. You see, what Absalom failed to see, like many failed to see, is that sin needs right punishment. Until it is received... There will always be confusion and destruction that leads to death. For us, we must know that sin was dealt with by God, placing it upon His Son. That's that word, propitiation. He made that there, atonement for our sin, bloodshed. And that is His goodness towards us. That is His kindness. That is His justice, that we can be justified if we believe in that. Justified, just if I had never sinned. That's what that means. That's how God looks at us when we have faith to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did there. We are clothed with his righteousness. Now, when we see our sinfulness and rebellion against God, when we see our hypocrisy and condemning others for committing the same wrath-deserving sins, then we can marvel at God's goodness and patiently and tolerantly withholding the wrath that we deserve. And that is what leads to true repentance. That's why that verse says that. And it's complete, complete in accord with Paul's theology when he writes this in 2 Corinthians 7. When he wrote this to the church, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, 
but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, which is just remorse, right? Produces death. And remorse from the consequence, I should say. That's what Absalom did. Let me just... Let me just close with this, as we read earlier in our scripture reading. At the end of this passage, verse 33, there you find Joab went to the king. He summoned Absalom. And there you find this last verse. There's a picture of Absalom meeting his father again, coming to the king and bowing himself on his face to the ground. No true repentance in his life before the king. And it says the king kissed Absalom. Now we can't know with 100% certainty whether this was done in love or done out of obligation. There's a tension as I've shared. Either way, there's not reconciliation that's happening here because Absalom's not repentant. What we do know is it leaves us feeling uneasy by the time you get to verse 33 especially of the knowledge of what's coming next week in Absalom's future ambition and conspiracy. You see, if Absalom chose the sorrow according to the will of God, the way of repentance, there would have been hope. There would have been salvation, reconciliation. But he chose the sorrow of the world, and that would produce his eventual death. It's interesting, the side note in the text about his hair and his appearance, that's, what's will, that's what will kill him in a couple chapters. You see, this text is a head-scratcher. What it does, though, is it leaves us hoping and longing for reconciliation. What if there was another way to live? And we hope there that if it were us, caught in our guilt, stained with sin, having made a life full of mistakes, we would want to be welcomed and embraced and kissed by the Father, right? Well, Luke 15, which is why we read that, The prodigal son provides for us the answer to that longing. For it is the son who recognizes that he has sinned against his father. Just like David recognized, only against you have I sinned, right? And in that story, the father, when he was a long way off, right, opens his arms and embraces him and takes him in and kisses him on the face, receiving him in grace and love. And that is what happens for all of us when we humbly come before Christ, repentant and humble. Know this today, no sin or sins is too great to keep the Father from loving you. If you want forgiveness today, if you truly desire it, if you're aware of the darkness of your own sin and depravity before God, enough to ask His forgiveness, then you can do that today. You can confess it. And if you confess it, you can believe that he's faithful to forgive it. And then God embraces you in his arms, forgives you, and he washes you clean because of the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. This is the kindness towards us in Christ. This is the grace of a Savior. This is why we come each week and celebrate what Christ has done for us. I'm going to pray for us as the team comes up. But even during this last song, 
Even if you just need a moment to bow your head before God and confess sin, if you already know the Lord, just to bring that about, that's scary heart work. And if you've never placed your trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can do that today. To come to Him with forgiveness and repentance and He will receive you with a Father's love, a Father's embrace, a Father's kiss because of Jesus on the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you, I hope, not just because this is the prayer at the end of the sermon, but that our hearts would truly bow before you in the kind of humility that's required when we acknowledge the sin of our own lives. And this is in no way, shape, or form meant to guilt us or make us feel like horrible people. The fact is we already are that. And it's just being aware of that and our desperate need for you. Father, I pray for the one who has placed their faith in Christ, who's in this room, who may be just hardened by sin, a sin that they have not done anything but overlook in their life, that you would convict them of that by your spirit, that you would grab a hold of their heart in this moment, make their eyes see it, make them pray that to ask you if there's any unclean way about them. Reveal that, God that they would turn to you in repentance, confessing that and believing that you would restore them. Father, that, that's the kind of sin that shackles us and binds us, the hypocrisy of all of that. And by your spirit, would you work in hearts to reveal that and lead to repentance by your kindness. And Father, for the one who has never trusted Christ, that they would this moment place their faith in you maybe for the first time seeing that they are far from you, that they sit under judgment because of sin, that you are holy and just and right for them to deserve that punishment, for we all do. And yet today, for the first time, met with the grace of a loving Father to not overlook that sin, but to place it upon his Son at the cross and take it for us that while we were still sinners, our position didn't change, Christ died for us, that they would know that truth. And Father, that truth would lead them to this embrace from you that they would feel the love of a father coming home, forgiven, restored, renewed. Father, we praise you that you are doing the work of changing lives here, even in this church body. Praise you that you are doing the work of bringing people from death to life, And Father, we praise you that that you love us enough to send your son for us that we could have life with you forever. May we glorify him. May we know the king's heart, the shepherd, this king of love. And may we praise you for the gospel. Father, we glory in the name of Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you and we pray all these things in his name and all God's people said.